Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. The show is produced at 3CR Community Radio and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tan Hang Pham. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge Elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. On today's Women on the Line, we take a closer look at the recent changes to the Australian Government's My Health Record. We chat with Katina Michael, who is a professor in the School of Computing and Information Technology at the University of Wollongong, Australia. She is a senior member of the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers and a board member of the Australian Privacy Foundation. Recently, she has taken up a position in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. She chats with us about data and security issues with the My Health Record system. Later in the show, we hear from Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, chat to us about how sex workers will be impacted by the recent changes to My Health Record. First, let's hear from Katina Michael. Could you please explain to Women on the Line listeners what the My Health Record is about and um, what changes are being made to the system? Well, purportedly, the My Health Record is a way that everyday Australian citizens can record uh, things to do with their health. This might include information like their allergies, uh, you know, whether they're allergic to penicillin uh, in a life-threatening situation. That might be very helpful to uh, emergency response teams. Additionally, things like um, medications they're taking, keeping track of that, uh, notes from health professionals like general practitioners uh, and nurses. So it was almost like a, a whole-of-life health approach to recording information and the patient or the citizen is able to upload bits of data uh, as they come across it or request that data uh, be uploaded by the general practitioner and stored in a system that's governed by the Australian government. This is to do with uh, tracking people's health over time and allegedly assisting them uh, to have one coherent lifelong record. This is especially the case when someone's suffering from a particular syndrome, for instance, or they've been in a tragic accident where they've survived but with severe injury or um, are getting older and are forgetting uh, just basic information about their health. Recently, there were announcement changes that it was originally it was an opt-in system, but now it's an opt-out system. Are you aware of those changes and like yeah, the implications of having that kind of system where you have you choose to opt in or opt out? It's quite predatory when you think about it. It's not really giving people a choice. In the beginning, as the system was being piloted and tested, there were about five million registrants that opted in to the system. However. Of those 5 million or so registrants, there were really only about a million pieces of information that were uploaded, showing that the system wasn't being used to its full capacity, but also that people were a little bit anxious about things that they would purportedly upload. Um, This was particularly of concern to people with mental health issues, uh, those who had a criminal record in the past, maybe were also drug abusers, those who perhaps had terminated a pregnancy early, uh, 
those who uh, were HIV positive or perhaps HEP positive uh, with hepatitis, uh, and those who were perhaps clinical health nurses in particularly dangerous situations where they might have been exposed to some level of risk. There was not a very good uptake of this system uh, and the government decided that they would opt everyone in when it rolled out nationally uh, about two months ago and that if individuals wished to be removed from the system, then they could make that request online following some basic procedures uh, to the English-speaking world at least. That procedure to opt out takes around about five to ten minutes if you have all the information that you require and is fairly straightforward, although when people tried to opt out on the first and second day, about 20,000 people a day were opting out at the, at the early stages of its release across Australia. The system actually crashed and couldn't handle the number of simultaneous requests coming through from everyday Australians. So what we have at the moment is a system where the majority of Australians are quite unaware still, despite the advocacy work done by organisations like Civil Liberties Australia or the Australian Privacy Foundation, for instance, people are still unaware that by visiting the doctor, if they don't opt out within the next month or so, that if a doctor ticks a box that says, you know, to be added to the My Health record, that your diagnosis, your personal information, whether you've visited a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whether you've gone to get some behavioural management for a child, whether you've gone to get some advice for a child's occupational therapy, all of these various touch points will be recorded. In fact, the government is remunerating GP officers and other kinds of clinicians by the amount of data that they're uploading. So they're incentivising the uploading of the data. And the reason why that's happening is Mm -hmm. a system like this is not useful to a nation unless there is some significant use in it. So if only 30% ever opt in um, or actually use the system or only 30% of GPs around Australia use the system as it was meant to be, it's not enough for actually there to be some insights into the data that is there. From a data perspective, I kind of see that as like a taking away consent. So when we talk about information privacy, we really are talking about protecting the privacy of individuals and in this case when we're talking about health data it is in a special category called sensitive data and sensitive data is something that's even recognized in the uh, Australian privacy principles. What happens when we impose um, an opt-in nationwide is that we remove one's ability to make a choice mm. and to provide consent and sometimes this consent could be levels of consent which haven't really been considered in this instance of this rollout of a nationwide scheme and so it's open slather consent uh, by force I would say you know when we look at things like uh, taking someone's DNA or taking a saliva swab there are very strict laws about whether you can penetrate someone's body to take a DNA sample like a saliva swab and I liken it to this I mean it's one thing for individuals in Australia to be mailing out saliva swabs to 23andMe in the States or Ancestry.com. And it's a completely different proposition when the consent has been removed and almost imposed on you. We are slow to understand and comprehend sometimes the importance of this data, whether it, you know, it may be leaked, uh, there may be, um, you know, when we look at the law constituted around uh, the My Health record, Um, One of the 
sections actually states well if it's in the if it's, if it's in the public interest to gain access and uh, oh. whether third parties can gain access whether um, law enforcement can gain access at any time without a search warrant and these are the things that are starting to escalate in debates on community radio around Australia you're listening to Katina Michael chat to us about the data and security issues with the government's my health record system I'm Tan Hung Pham, and you're listening to Women on the Line. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Now stay tuned to hear more from Katina. Because it's sensitive information, and you mentioned that third parties or even government or authority officials could access the information, um, do you have any speculations of why they would add that kind of clause to accessing sensitive information? It is mysterious. I mean... Everyday Australians wouldn't realise, but the Australian Privacy uh, Act, when it was formed, uh, or the Privacy Act was formed, uh, there was always a clause, you know, number 10 on that list did allow law enforcement with permission to actually access whatever information uh, they required to do their job, especially when we could look at proportionally the crime um, that was being considered, for example, if it was a murder then there's, uh, you know, it's proportional gaining access to particular data uh, to confirm that someone may have uh, committed the act via their DNA may have been a legitimate use and breach of someone's privacy. What's happened now is that it seems to have been watered down significantly from just for law enforcement to more sinister means, for example, the third parties, which is still rather open. I mean, the government have almost retracted on third parties gaining access. But what if those third parties were your employer? What if those third parties were your health insurance provider or life insurance provider? I'm very aware of cases uh, where individuals have gone to take out life insurance, for instance, and have been told, sorry, you're not insurable. And the question has been asked, why not? And the response maybe has been, well, you know, you suffered postnatal depression. And I find that quite alarming, to be honest, because a woman suffers uh, from postnatal depression. It does not mean uh, that her she's not insurable, you know, in a life insurance context. There's another interesting part that I've read about the My Health Records is that um, the data will be held for up to 130 years or something like that after the person has deceased. And I'm wondering if you're aware of that and what the implications that is on, say, family, like if you have a mental illness and if you have a, some sort of illness that runs in the family, how that affects family members? I think that's a great point that you raise. Um, I think especially when someone is deceased, uh, and has no control or is completely unaware, obviously uh, not uh, of this world, incapacitated and, and dead, uh, their families are left to possibly deal with the repercussions. And we only have to look at things like paternity or maternity. And in the case of paternity, what if uh, certain tests that were stored proved that someone was a father of a child mm. that the family was unaware of? And then we have estate issues uh, when we look at the will, for instance, is there someone uh, able to request a revocation or at least um, an appeal uh, based on their um, bloodline back to someone who's deceased? Uh, there may be issues with syndromes. You know, what happens when uh, a family has a genetic disorder that is not outwardly um, understood or, or seen? 
and um, this is then data that is used by insurers to understand whether children of a particular parent uh, ongoingly, grandchildren and so forth, great-grandchildren, may be part of a chain uh, whether they are high risk and high maintenance. Does that push a premium up? Um, what about aborted uh, fetuses um, and, and women choosing uh, to deliberately terminate a pregnancy early? What happens in that situation if nobody knew about it? Imagine it's a 16-year-old child. What angst can this cause? And I think these are just a few of the many, many, many examples. What do you mean by social sorting? Okay, so if we have data um, available on everyone, um, say nobody opted out and all Australians were on a database and all of the data was being collected, we knew how many children were autistic, we knew how many children uh, perhaps had Down syndrome, we knew how many had cerebral palsy, and the list goes on. We knew how many would have a propensity towards depression. We knew how many had obsessive compulsive disorder. And the list goes on and on and on. What happens when we decide and we use that data, matching it against other data to identify members of society that are allegedly or reportedly at risk? Um, and at risk might be a term that's used for those born with a syndrome or those with a propensity to have to conduct a crime based on their genetic mm. profile. Um, so we're sorting society right. based on data that belongs to them but is not really, it's like the secondary use of da- data. It's, it's not data that is immediately going to inform you about someone's health so that you can get some drugs to, you know, like antibiotics to help them, but rather it's data that is retrospectively used later on to infer someone's propensity perhaps to commit a crime, perhaps mm. to get a good job, perhaps to be a good school teacher or a good pilot. Yeah, that makes me think of like increased racial profiling or um, profiling yes. of yeah communities that are more marginalised because of they might be part of categories, as you said, social sorting. And I think it's minority groups that will suffer greatly. I know when I was studying the collection of DNA samples and profiles in the UK on the UK DNA database that 38% of people on that database uh, were linked to the so-named Black Ethnic Minority Group, BEM. And I found that startling, Mm. but with only 30% of the DNA data for that minority group, they actually could identify all Black Ethnic Minority people in the UK. So you don't need full coverage in instances of DNA because people that are related share DNA data. That's why if I was to do a saliva swab and send it to 23andMe and my sister was to do the same, we'd have a very similar profile because we share a lot of DNA. And so with only 30% of data, in the case of DNA, it's got a rich um, permeation of information, uh, you could know a lot about a minority group. In fact, uh, you could purportedly say, if I have 38% of Australia's um, Aboriginal community, then I can relate back to 100% of Aborigines, for instance, if, as a target minority group, and infer certain things about this, this group of people. And I think that kind of revolving cycle can only lead to more harm. What do you think the government could do in terms mm-hmm. of um, making the system, um, I guess, more beneficial for patients? 
It's a good question, but I think they can't. They've created a centralised system and in terms of an architecture, they can't go back and fix that. That was set in stone. I think what individuals should do if they remain opted in, and I encourage everyone to opt out, honestly, uh, because they don't know how this data will be used and how it will come back to bite them in the future. Unless you're 75 years of age or 80 years of age and you require support uh, to keep track of increasing ailments, unless you find it difficult, maybe you don't have support and you're living alone uh, and you're on disability and you require this data to help you in a way that your, uh, your health team can help you live better independently. And I'm talking about very serious illnesses here and no family support and no friend support. Apart from those instances, I would say opt out. But I would say for the older community, uh, perhaps uh, as they're, uh, you know, getting older and aging, um, that they may require this to help them um, to have clinicians. At that point, they've got very little in terms of uh, the same level of risk that a younger person has, maybe in their teens, maybe through their mid-40s, maybe even before retirement in the workplace. Um, so I, I will say that some Australians uh, may find the system beneficial depending on their specific context. But I think for youth and for the middle-aged uh, and for those who are still working, I really uh, warn against uh, this kind of system. And I just have to look at the, the system that was hacked in Singapore, one of the world's most secure places. 1.5 million people's records were hacked over a, um, a nine-day period. Uh, the state and the cybersecurity Singaporean agency said that it was all a state-sponsored attack against um, Prime Minister Lung. Uh, but I really failed to see uh, that a system of that nature and scope would be hacked just to damage the reputation of Prime Minister Lung, although that's what people are saying it was for, I would say as well, what about those 1.5 million people that have had their records uh, made available? And so sophisticated hacks, sophisticated country, and we're seeing hacks happen. So what kind of assurance do I have as an Australian that that won't happen to me, my kids, my spouse, and my extended family and friends? Women on the Line you just heard from Katina Michael chat to us about the data and security issues with the government's My Health Record system. Up next, we hear from 3CR's Thursday Breakfast team interview Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, about how sex workers are impacted by the recent changes to My Health Records. The snippet interview was aired on 3CR on Thursday, 8th of August. Let's hear from Jules Kim. Scarlet Alliance is the Australian Sex Workers Association. So we're the uh, national peak body representing sex workers, sex worker organisations and projects and um, network. And we have been around since 1989. Everyone um, involved in Scarlet Alliance is also themselves a sex worker. Um, that's on every level from our governance to our volunteers um, to all our staff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we um, involved in kind of advocacy, policy and representation um, around um, sex work and as well as um, lobbying for law reform on um, sex work laws, which are still pretty bad around Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so on that note of advocacy, you know, you released a really great briefing paper on the My Health Record system that outlines mm-hmm. some of the... Um, 
yeah, some of the things I guess that sex workers might want to consider. Could you run us through some of the, yeah, some of the risks that you feel are present um, with this system, particularly for the sex worker community? Sure. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, given the context of the minister's announcement, um, uh, I guess some of that has shifted, but it's still, the, the, the risks are still present for us because, uh, you know, we, we uh, recently had done the research project on, on um, stigma in, in healthcare, um, as well as kind of the ways in which sex workers navigate stigma with um, the Centre for Social Research and Health. Um, one of the main strategies that sex workers use is is kind of, um, you know, selectively disclosing. So, you know, you might have a doctor that you kind of are seeing um, for related to your work, and but you don't necessarily want your podiatrist or your, you know, or, or whoever else to know um, about your sex work. There is still such pervasive stigma and discrimination against sex workers. Um, and uh, one of the kind of main perpetrators were was actual healthcare system. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had many reports of uh, sex workers, you know, um, sort of seeing um, sort of mental health professionals, let's say, and it's, you know, always coming back to the sex work and, um, and yeah, you know, the sex work being kind of pathologised um, by healthcare providers. So I think, um, you know, it, it is really important. Um, our identity protection is really important. And not only that, it's, you know, I think the My Health record becomes akin to a form of registration uh, because, you know, in um, some states and territories, there is still registration of sex workers. In fact, yesterday in the ACT, a bill just passed to remove registration of sex workers, recognising the significant um, barriers that it poses for sex workers, um, given that, you know, we are um, still criminalised in, in many aspects and, um, you know, uh, depending on the type of work that we do, um, and uh, so, it, you know, I think uh, having a permanent record of your sex work um, can be used against you. And we have seen it used against our members in, in really kind of unrelated ways to our health. Like, so, you know, being a sex worker has been used against people in child custody cases, in future employment prospects, comes up in, you know... Um, uh, in so like if they want to uh, get a job in the future, like working with children, for example, um, and so you know because of that um, stigma and discrimination against sex workers, I think you know there are uh, real concerns for having a permanent record of um, the fact that, um, that that you are a sex worker and and a record that um, I think one of the flaws of the, the my health record is that um, it doesn't. Uh, you know, I think that people have spoken about how it does, um, you know, if anyone accesses it, it, there's a record of the fact that they access it. In fact, the access is, it only shows the access of the organisation or the, um, you know, um, entity that's kind of accessed it. So not the person who's accessed your information. So I, I think, you know, um, so it does, it, it in essence, provide a bit of privacy to the people that might be accessing your record, but less so for um, the people with the record. so mm, It's almost that, ironic, um, isn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately we do have very inconsistent laws around sex mm. work and they vary state by state. So somebody might be working perfectly legally, let's say, for example, in New South Wales where sex work is decriminalised and potentially move um, 
to, like, for example, South Australia or WA, where it's still criminalised, and um, and that their health records might be, um, you know, um, create issues for them um, moving into a jurisdiction where um, sex work is criminalised. Um, also, we have different laws for different types of sex work. So, you know, uh, it might be legal to be, for example, a, a private sex worker, but uh, illegal to be a street-based sex worker, um, as it is in, in most jurisdictions. So I think, um, you know, uh, for that reason, that, and, and also uh, our health is actually legislated under the criminal law in some jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So it, I think that, that that poses legitimate concerns for sex workers in, in, in um, the creation of the My Health Record. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really shows the inadequacy of a, you know, of a national system being imposed um, when there are so many inconsistencies and discrepancies across jurisdictions. Um, mm, and absolutely. in those, you know, in those gaps, there are such risks um, in terms of the impact on people's everyday lives um, and their health yeah, and well-being. Mm. Um, and... Just briefly, I know that the Sex Workers Outreach Project did a survey in relation to um, the My Health Record. Would you be able to tell us about Mm -hmm. that briefly? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, and there was a lot of interest in the My Health Records because, I mean, you know, sex workers as a community are, um, as I said, you know, kind of used to um, having um, experience, kind of pretty negative experiences in the healthcare system. So, you know, I I know that they had um, a lot of uh, responses in their... um, my health uh, record survey um, and you know I think predominantly the feeling of the sex worker community is that um, it would be safer in many cases for us to um, opt out and I mean I think it also um, speaks to the lack of education and public awareness that's been kind of done around the issue too so uh, you know I mean I, I think that it, um, largely the information that's come out has been through media and through um, NGOs and community organisations and activists that have raised concerns about um, issues with My Health Records. It hasn't been through any kind of informed consent campaign by the government. Um, so I think, you know, uh, that, that's also kind of deeply problematic um, because I think, you know, given the information that we had about My Health Records, had it not been for the kind of activism of, um, of various quarters, that it's um, probably a, a lot of people would have um, had a record and with um, serious concerns, you know, um, and that could have um, negatively affected them in the future. If you're looking to opt out of My Health Records, the closing date is Thursday 15th of November 2018. To opt out or find out more information, visit myhealthrecord.gov.au. Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. It's produced by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. Send us your feedback on today's show via email at womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also download our programs from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash womenontheline. The theme music for our show is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Thanks for listening in to Women on the Line. I'm Tan Hung Pham, and tune in again next time.